You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, we ask that you would forgive the sins of the preacher, for they are many, and that you would send your Holy Spirit to do two things, to show us our need for Jesus and to give him to us. Amen. So no doubt many of us are aware of this. This is a crazy thought if you're in Birmingham right now at this moment. 56 years ago, today, if you were worshiping in this space in the morning in downtown Birmingham, you probably would have heard something outside in the distance from where we're sitting. It probably would have sounded like a pop, but go four blocks down 6th Avenue right there. Go four blocks down six, and you would have heard or seen at least 15 sticks of dynamite exploding beneath the steps of 16th Street Avenue Baptist Church. Four young, beautiful girls made in the image of God and purchased with the blood of his most precious son. Ages 14, 14, 14, and 11. Totally gone. I didn't know this part. Maybe you did. At the very moment the bomb went off, the preacher was evidently putting his finishing touches on his sermon for sermon prep. And do you know what the title of his sermon was? It was called, A Love That Forgives. If you listen over the years to the families and the loved ones and those who survived the blast of that dark and horrible day, an overwhelming theme keeps coming up through the decades of reflection on this event. It's the same theme of the sermon that never got preached that day, forgiveness. In its pure form, in its biblical form, one of the most shocking things about Christianity is the centrality and the power of forgiveness, or what Dr. King called the strength to love. Our passage today begins our series Through these discipleship passages in the Gospel of Luke, over the fall, we're going to be looking at scenes in this Gospel of Jesus' call to follow me. Discipleship and following Jesus, as we'll see in this passage, is overlaid from beginning to end with forgiveness. Maybe on the surface, the theme of forgiveness isn't apparent. We've got Jesus teaching on a boat, and we've got fish and nets and miracles. We've got Matthew, the shady tax collector, hosting parties with a jovial Jesus. And we've got Pharisees who are totally upset with all of it, angry that Jesus isn't more religious or more moral or more appropriate or more dignified or more godly. So again, maybe on the surface, the theme of forgiveness isn't apparent But just because something's not on the surface doesn't mean that it's not, in fact, present everywhere and the most important force to reckon with. Just ask anyone who lives near an active volcano. So let's examine three scenes from Luke 5 that help us to observe the magma of forgiveness just flowing right under the surface of all these interactions. The call of Matthew, the the call of Peter, and then the in-between. So first I want to start with the call of Peter. Did you notice, actually, Peter's odd reaction in the midst of all this fish miracle stuff? Jesus, a carpenter's son and a rabbi, tells a bunch of seasoned veteran fishermen, successful enough in their craft that they own their own boats, 
He tells these guys who've been fishing all night with their depth finders and their GPS and their expensive lures and their knowledge about all the hot spots on the lake. He says, hey, throw your nets out. I'm sure James and John are like, hey, dude, stay in your lane, bro. You're good at this teaching stuff. And yeah, you may have made some sweet cabinets craftsman style out of Nazareth. But man, there ain't no fish out there. And Peter's like, hey, man, just this guy's got something about him. Just do what he says. And as the three of them turn their backs on Jesus to chuck their nets into the water, I imagine they're not unlike your typical teenager. Eye rolls for days. And so when they pull up the nets full of fish, what would you expect someone like Peter to have said? How in the world did you know that they were there? How did you do that? But that's not how Peter reacts. You read verse 8, this is what it says. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at his knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter reacts this way because when you see a miracle like this, you immediately recognize whose power you're encountering. You're encountering the power of the living God. And I don't know about you, but if the living God were to appear before me in power and in glory... What would be the very first need that would jump out of my heart? Oh no, I'm cornered. I need forgiveness. And so there it is, the magma right under the surface. When Jesus calls disciples more than anything else, he calls them to reckon with their need for repentance. Second scene, the call of Matthew. I love this. Now, Matthew's a tax collector, and if we're not careful, we could think of Matthew in the role of something like an IRS agent. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to be his friend. He's just there to take your money and to give it to all the governmental fat cats, right? Which is true, but IRS agent doesn't capture the despicable nature of a first century tax collector in the Roman era. They were guys who had free reign to skim off the top and to swindle you. They were sleazy. They were greasy. Think IRS agent meets used car salesman. No offense, used car salesman. Think better call Saul. Or think Taylor Swift's the liars and the dirty, dirty cheats of the world. Okay? A position of authority with very little accountability. That's this guy. And to this sleazeball, Jesus walks straight up to him. And the narrative is uncomfortably brief. Verses 27 and 28 say, Jesus saw a rich sleazeball named Levi and said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And the funny thing is, the text says he left everything. But that must be more metaphorical and spiritual because the next verse says that Levi kept his house. Because, well, he threw a big party with, as verse 29 says, a large company of sleazeballs. And the Pharisees are totally put out by this. And just in case you think that in the middle of this party, Jesus stood on the side like some pious wallflower, you fast forward two chapters in Luke, and the Pharisees' accusation shows us the level of the appearance of Jesus' behavior, at least the appearance to these religious folks. They accuse Jesus with these words in chapter 7. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Do any of you have that friend? Someone whose very presence is simultaneously good and wholesome, and yet not one ounce of judgment or condemnation is felt 
by them. Someone whose kindness and grace gives you permission to really be you, to no longer hide, to not have to put on any masks. Someone with whom you can be totally honest and transparent. What does that feel like? It feels like freedom. It feels like, well, forgiveness. And there's that magma again, right under the surface. When Jesus calls Matthew, and when Jesus calls you to follow him, the first word, and the middle word, and the last word to you ever and always is, I forgive you. And in case you still doubt that forgiveness is the kind of subterranean watchword of discipleship, listen with me for just a few seconds to this part in Luke 5 that we skipped between the calls of Peter and the calls of Matthew. Third, the in-between. There, in verses 17 through 26, Jesus heals a paralytic man. I mean, amazing miracle. A man who could not move, got up and moved. But the text doesn't foreground that miracle as much as it foregrounds the conflict over what? The fact that Jesus forgave his sins. That's what gets the airtime in that passage. Well, so the Pharisees don't like any of this. Jesus is found far too liberally giving out grace, partying with sinners, letting bad people off the hook. And it's all very irreligious. In fact, a 5th century church father, Maximus of Turin, pointed out this little nugget to me. He said, it's interesting that Jesus calls his disciples not in the synagogue, not in the church, not in a religious establishment, but out there on a boat accompanied by the smells of wood and lake water and fish. You know, that's very unchurchy of Jesus. A good word for churchy folks like you and like me. And so the tip of the spear, the climax of Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees, erupts in this moment in what psychologists call a triangle. Verses 30 to 31, the Pharisees are upset with Jesus' behavior, and instead of talking to him, they grumble to his disciples with gobs of self-righteous judgmentalism. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus busts up the triangle. Hey, if you have a problem with me, talk to me. And hear this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick You see, I'll be hanging over here with the sick people. Looks like you guys are pretty good on your own, aren't you? You guys sure are something with all your spiritual health. Good luck with that. I guess only the sick need a physician. In other words, forgiveness only makes sense to people who know that they're sinners. And so, the powerful indictment, the powerful word... According to Jesus, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Sick people who know that they're sick. And sick people who continue to believe the lie that they aren't. I want to rewind a little bit. Have you ever thought about the morbidity of the metaphor of catching fish? At first I just thought I was stretching Jesus' teaching beyond what he meant. But the more I reflected on the testimony of the Bible... In general, and Jesus' subsequent teaching on discipleship later in this gospel and elsewhere, the more I think it's actually right on point. So, what happens to fish when you pull them out of the water? 
Well, to put it bluntly, they die. They flop, they fight. In futility, their gills flare, looking for any drop of water to suck in, and it's just not there. Now, when Jesus says only the sick need a physician, he's not talking about a cold or a sinus infection. Jesus hasn't come to give you chicken soup or some antibiotics to help your relatively healthy self heal up again. Now, when Jesus says only the sick need a physician, he's talking about incurable cancer or irreversible Alzheimer's. He's talking about, in the words of Soren Kierkegaard, the sickness unto death. Jesus is saying, only those who recognize their disease as fatal will give up trying to cure it on their own and cry out for mercy and the healing of the great physician, the only one who can save. You know what? This sickness manifests itself in 10,000 symptoms, abuse, neglect, mental illness, anxiety, loneliness, depression, suicidal thoughts, alienation, bigotry, racism, sexism, classism, doubting God, denying God, gossip, slander, misplaced sexual desire, hatred, unhealthy codependence, manipulation, greed, divorce, excess, and on and on, all symptoms of the same fatal disease. And so, brothers and sisters, here's how the healing works. According to Jesus, you must die. Physically and spiritually, because they're actually tied together. You must die. Follow me onto the waters, Jesus says, and I will make you fishers of men. Water. It's one of those meta-biblical metaphors. Because in the Bible and in life, water is a substance and a place of life and death. At once, we need water to sustain our bodies. And water has been the cause of probably billions of death across human history. If Christianity is a life and death kind of deal, no wonder God puts a sacrament like baptism at the center of our faith. Water. Life and death. Follow me onto the waters. If you're a disciple of Jesus and you've answered that call, follow me, or maybe you're answering that call for the first time tonight, know this clearly. You're dying. You're dying. And I say this next part in all tenderness and truth. You're dying and God is causing it. Because he loves you. I tell you this. Dying at the hands of God doesn't feel like love in those acute moments of dying. But I'll also tell you this. That on the other side of that death is a life and a joy and a new birth so powerful, so exquisite, whose hope of glory, as hard as it is to believe far outweighs all the suffering and sadness of this present death. It's the hardest thing to believe, but it's there and it's true because God said it. And because God said it today, as in every day, you must choose again whether you're going to call God truthful or whether you're going to call God a liar. Did God really say, whispers the enemy, did God really say... 
My favorite movie of 2019, by far, is definitely 100% Avengers Endgame. I just watched it for the second time with my boys a couple weeks ago. So epic. So epic. One of the things I love about the arc of the storyline is that the movie is three hours of life and death intensity sprinkled with little serene pockets of respite. And in one of these pockets of respite, one of those moments of joy and healing, Tony Stark, Iron Man, is able to travel back in time and he ends up running into his father, Howard Stark. Howard doesn't recognize Tony, of course, but when they meet, Tony can tell that his dad is preoccupied with something, shockingly not work-related. Howard is, in fact, uh, so preoccupied that he starts gushing to Tony, a total stranger. Howard is preoccupied because, as we find out, his wife is pregnant, and in a few short months, she's going to have a child, Tony Stark. And as he's talking to Howard Stark, Tony has this moment of realization, oh my gosh, I traveled back to the year that I was born. I didn't even realize it. And Tony had always felt distant from his father growing up. So it was surprising and heart-melting to him that his father was gushing with so much love and anticipation and nervousness about his son's arrival. Part of the reason Howard Stark was expressing anxiety about his son's birth was that he was being born into a time of global unrest where the future was bleak and uncertain. Death was everywhere. And ironically, in this moment, Howard asked Tony if he had any advice. And Tony, a little shocked, said, You know, I thought my dad was tough on me, but now looking back on it, I just remember the good stuff. And he did his best. And Howard replies as he's walking away into his car, I tell you, the kid's not even here yet. And there's nothing I wouldn't do for him. Howard returns to shake Tony's hand cordially and says, it's good to meet you. Tony pauses, looks him square in the eye with all his knowledge of the future because he's from the future and says, Howard, everything is going to be okay. And he gives him an awkwardly long hug. So I have a question for you. You who are in the midst of dying as you follow Jesus. If you had someone from the future come to you who has the full knowledge of what's in store for you come to you in the midst of your dying, in your darkest moment, and say, everything's going to be okay. How would you feel? When Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he died with you here in the present. He permanently wrapped himself in your death, in your depression, in your cancer, in your dysfunction, in your broken relationship, in your sadness, in your loneliness, in your abuse, in your bigotry. And in that dying, he secured not a possible future, but a certain one, a certain one that is eternal, a certain one that is full of tearless life and joy and hope. And he comes back from that future right now to you here in this very room. And he says, follow me because everything is going to be okay. 
And as you follow me into the waters of your death, I'm going to ask you to tell other sick and dying people about what you've heard right here. Follow him. Because when you follow him, everything's going to be okay. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.